Stay informed, get involved. Welcome to the Great Amber's Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. Welcome back to the Great Amber's Podcast, everybody. Uh, so today it's just going to be me. We'll be back uh, next week with the interview with uh, Brent Noyles from Kansas. Uh, I wanted to take this episode and take a little bit of time today. For the last few weeks, I've talked about the fact that I sort of joined in with the Stop the Hate for Profit dot org uh, Facebook boycott, uh, and that I've stepped off Facebook personally and with the podcast for at least the month of July. Uh, getting near the end of it, and not one hundred percent sure what I'm going to do or where I'm going to go from here. But I kind of wanted to explain a bit more of my thinking and my approach and my thoughts, and just sort of share that with uh, with you. Uh, and I will put lots of links to books and articles and YouTube videos and podcasts and stuff in the show notes, uh, along with names and everything that I talk about in this. So you don't have to worry about trying to write them down as they go. Uh, so I was thinking back to it. Um, so I, I think I first joined Facebook in I think it was probably 2000, late 2008, early 2009, uh, when my wife and I were, when we were living in Japan and it was, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I loved it at that point. It was, it was, it was great to get on, uh, to connect with, you know, friends, people I hadn't seen in a long time, like just rekindle a lot of these old relationships. It was also extremely useful. Like living in Japan, there was lots of people coming and going, like somebody would live for a year and then move away. Somebody else would new, new would move in. So you could friend them on Facebook and stay in touch that way. Uh, there was just, um, there were so many positives to that, you know, as, um, you know, my friends and family had kids to see pictures, to share those pictures, see what everybody was up to, share the pictures, share the info. It was, it was so positive. It added a lot. And I enjoyed those connections and that sense of community. Uh, even still to today, you know, uh, in the interview I did with Ken and Al talked about the Striders running group, Facebook group, and how much I enjoyed being part of it and the positivity and the support and the pictures and just everything that came from that. Um, I mean, I was in groups like with hockey, there were so many positive groups that I'm a part of and that I enjoy doing on Facebook. There was also, it was a great way for, to communicate what's happening in town, like for sharing events, especially through, you know, COVID-19 and through everybody being sort of at home. Like the, you had the Nova Scotia kitchen party Facebook group where everybody was posting and sharing their, uh, songs and music from their home that you had, you there was so much sharing and so much positivity in Facebook that it added a lot to it. Um, and I mean, even for myself, like I think for a lot of small businesses, Facebook is a great tool. And for myself with this podcast, it is a great tool to get and to share and your message and information about your products and information about your business and information about yourself. Uh, it's quick, it's easy, it's simple. You're not trying to maintain a giant website. You're not, there's a lot of positives for small towns for the communities, for the town to share information. There is a lot of positives and a lot of things that I really like about Facebook and really like about the tools and really like about the product and the platform. Uh, also now keep in mind, Facebook, the company also owns Instagram and it also owns WhatsApp. So I think those need to kind of get lumped. I don't use either one of those and I never really got into them, but they do need to be lumped into the discussion about, you know, and so there was a lot of positives for Facebook to, for me and, you know, minimal negatives for me individually, probably it distracted me a bit too much and I may have spent too much, but for me individually, there weren't a lot of negatives to it. And so the positives of Facebook always outweighed and significantly outweighed the negatives 
to Facebook for me individually. And I think looking back on it, probably 2014, 2015, definitely 2016 for me personally, the the gap between the positives and the negatives started to close. I don't think it ever came equal, but it started to close. I started to go, oh, maybe these positives aren't don't outweigh the negatives quite as much as they did before. And that was sort of something I think I started to wrestle with, but I didn't know why, I didn't know what, and I couldn't identify it. Actually, I probably was uncertain or kind of hesitant about this even before that. In getting ready to record this episode today, I said to my wife last night, you know, I feel like in the first few years I even made Facebook or like, you know, 2013, 2014, I made the comment, oh, I'm just so thankful this didn't exist when I was a teenager. And looking back on it, that probably should have been a bit of a red flag that if I wouldn't have wanted it when I was a teenager or in university, why was it good for teenagers in early 20s? at this point. Looking back, probably was the case. But like I said, I was starting to get uneasy. 2016 definitely did it. You know, you had the you had Trump being elected, you had Brexit, you had all these different things going on that really narrowed that gap. And so I kind of started reading more about it and finding more people who knew a lot more about this than I did. So I'll post links to some of their books and their episodes and podcasts and articles and YouTube channels in the show notes. So there are a lot of people who know a lot more about this than me that I've that I've learned a lot from. And and I want to share sort of what my thinking is and some of what I've learned to clarify kind of just that unease that I've had for a while towards Facebook specifically. And so the first one for me was, as I got in and started learning more about it, is the fundamental business model of Facebook. Um, I did a productivity workshop with the Chamber of Commerce last fall and talked about in this case that everybody says at this point, we now live in the attention economy. It's the attention economy, which means that you're trying to get enough people looking at your content so you can sell advertising on it and make money that way. So when we get back and think about it, So in the first quarter of 2020, Facebook had $17.74 billion in revenue and $5.893 billion in profit. Now, out of the revenue, about $300 million was from other sources, sales of the portal products. So that means it probably only brought in $17.4 billion in advertising revenue in three months. So when you get down to it, and this company brings in seventeen over $17 billion in ad revenue, the question for me becomes, what is their product and who is their customer? So for us at work, you know, we built, we rent apartments. Our product is a place to live and the service that goes with it. And our customer is the tenant. The tenant pays us rent. We provide them that product. And then when you stop and you look at Facebook, you go, who is, what is their product and what, who is their customer? And I got to say, the customer is usually the person paying the money, right? So in this case, the advertisers are the Facebook's customer. It's not you. It's not me. It's not the user. It's the advertiser. They're the ones that paid them $17.7 billion in the last quarter. So I didn't pay Facebook any money other than ads that I ran. And then what does that mean? Make the product that they're selling to the advertiser. Well, it's you. It's me. It's our attention and our engagement on Facebook and engagement with their products. And so to me, this is a problem because also currently in our economy, publicly traded companies are geared up to always increase your revenues, always beat targets, always increase 
your profit quarter after quarter after quarter so that your stock price goes up, goes up and goes up. So if Facebook made $17.7 billion in revenue last quarter and they want to make more next quarter, the only way they can do that is by getting more users or by increasing the time you spend on the site. So they already say they have over 2 billion users of Facebook. So they've got to be maxing that out at some point. And so they've got to get you to use, you, me, us, to use Facebook more and more than we were before to maximize and increase their revenue. So one of the ways that Facebook and a lot of other companies have done this, and Tristan Harris, who worked for Google for a while and then left to start the Center for Humane Technology, talks about it in the sense that they've created a slot machine in our pockets because we're all carrying our phones around, right? And so a slot machine in a casino or a VLT uses, uh, it's called an intermittent variable reward. So you don't win every time on a slot machine, but the slot machine is programmed for you to win just enough that you think the next time you will win more. That's how it's programmed. They also, you know, the casinos also set it up. So the ones that typically win the most are right by the front door. And if somebody wins the jackpot, it's loud. There's lights flashing because you, it makes people think I could do that next. I could be the one one more time. The next one could be the winner. So if it gives you just enough to think that you could win the next time, you'll keep, you'll keep looking. So what happens is every time you pick up your phone, um, you see a red, you know, you see a red icon on the Facebook messenger app or on the Facebook thing. And that could be anything, right? That could be a notification that your best friend just had a baby. That could be, uh, the couch you're looking for and sale for sale has just gone up. It could be anything on there. And it incentivizes you to check to see what it is because it could be anything. And so same with when you scroll down on the newsfeed, you scroll down because you don't know what's coming next. It could be anything that you're hoping or expecting for, and it's geared up this way. So it's more or less every time you pull your phone out, and this is his Tristan Harris's argument, every time you pull your phone out of your pocket to look at it or to scroll down, you check your email or whatever, it's basically the same as pulling the lever on the slot machine. You pull the lever on the slot machine and you think this time I'm going to win the jackpot and go home rich. Uh, you pull your phone out. This time I'm going to scroll down and I'm going to get that email I was waiting for from a friend. Or I'm going to see that picture that's going to make me happy. Or I'm going to finally find out what Trump did that's going to get him kicked out. Or I'm going to find out what Trudeau has done or like any of that. That's this. Every time you take your phone out of your pocket could be the time you win. And so companies like Facebook have used that to hijack our attention and hijack our usage of Facebook. So after Facebook uses similar strategies as slot machines to maximize and get you to always checking it, because you never know if you're going to miss out on something or miss out on whatever else, their next goal is to train their algorithm to make you and get you to use and interact with the site as much as possible. And so that's sharing content that's commenting, that's liking, it's it's all of these things. That's what they want you to do next because the more you're doing it, the more you're using Facebook, the more traffic a post is getting, the more value you are to or we are to advertisers. So they can sell more ads and make more money and increase their profit and increase their revenues and meet those quarterly targets set out by uh, the stock market and by Wall Street. And so Facebook has huge teams designing and working on their quote-unquote algorithm, which sounds really fancy, but kind of isn't. And I'll talk about that in a second to maximize your engagement on Facebook. 
And so what Facebook does is based on previous interactions and previous things that you've done is they will show you and they will train the algorithm and program the algorithm so that it it shows you the content that they it thinks you will most likely engage with. And this is based off all of your other uh, interactions on Facebook so far that they know what they will show you. Like, And we've all probably seen this, that the more you click on, for example, like uh, updates from the town of Amherst on council meetings, the more of those you see. The more times you go on to the Amherst buy and sell group and look at products for sale, the more ads you see from that. That because you're showing over time that you will interact with this content and Facebook wants to show you the content you will interact with. Facebook's incentive, financial incentive, is not to show you content that will make you happy or improve your day. Their financial incentive is to show you content you will interact with. So I want to talk just briefly sort of about the algorithm without getting too far into the weeds. But um, So Kara Swisher, she's a tech journalist, podcast host, was the first one I'd heard say this. Basically, and the algorithm was written by people so it can be changed. A lot of times the algorithm is presented as this abstract thing that nobody has control over. An algorithm for every company is built by people and can be changed and can be modified by people again. Because like I said before, Facebook has written and trained and designed the algorithm to maximize your engagement on Facebook. And so what they've found and figured the best way to do that is is to present and show content to you that will trigger a strong emotional response from you. That's the content you typically will comment, share, like. So those strong emotions are, we'll say joy, pictures of a newborn child, kittens, puppies. That's one strong emotion. The other ones are fear, anger, hatred. And the thing that they've found is that fear, anger, hatred elicit a stronger emotion and force you to act more quicker and more often than others. So Facebook's financial incentive is to show you more content that makes you angry and fearful so that you will use the platform and stay engaged so they can sell more ads. And so my comment before is this is the way the Facebook algorithm has been designed. It could be designed for something differently if somebody wanted to make that decision. Right, which brings me to one of the other things that I've been uneasy about with Facebook is, and I mentioned this in the interview I did with Tom McCogue last last week when we were talking about this. Actually, there's two things that came up in that interview. One is also that content that Facebook is asking to be shared on their platform that they're selling advertisements on. If it's like my podcast, like when I share podcast episode, Facebook sells advertising on people looking at uh, videos and things that I post but I don't get any money from Facebook. So basically they're taking my content that I've produced and are selling advertising on it and not sharing it with me. Not a huge deal for me, but for Saltwire, for the Globe and Mail, for local news, for just journalisms and journalists in general, and people looking to share news and create news and actually do legitimate news, this is a problem because it limits their revenue that they're able to then pay journalists, the pay reporters to grow and learn more about it. So, I mean, the reality is Facebook will make, like I said, in qu- first quarter of 2020, they made a profit of $5.893 billion. They could afford to share some of that revenue in ad sales with the people creating the content. And so one of the other things that came up again in the conversation with Tom is, so Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO of Facebook. Uh, he created the company 
2003, 2004 in Harvard. Uh, if you saw the social network movie from 2010, that covers a lot of it, but there's a lot wrong in that movie, but that gives you sort of the background to it. So he started the company and when they went public and when they sold on the exchange, or actually, I think they created this when they first created the company is two classes of shares. Most companies have one class of share where you own one share, you have one vote and whoever owns 51% of the shares has majority control of the company can put in the, can fire the CEO, can hire the board of directors, has accountability and control of the company. I guess this is common in the tech world, but Facebook created two classes of shares. The class sold to everybody else and there's a sort of super voting share. So the super voting shares has more than one vote per share. And so Mark Zuckerberg and I think his wife and a few other people on the like the leadership team have enough of these super voting shares so that Mark Zuckerberg always has control over 51% of the votes in the company. So he always has control of the company. And as CEO, he it makes him unaccountable. He has control over who becomes on the board of the directors. And the board of directors is responsible for the accountability of the CEO. So basically, he's able to always hire his boss. And so in that situation, you're never going to hire somebody who's going to hold you accountable and potentially fire you. So he has complete control over this company. And the regular shareholders can't do anything about it. They can't outvote him and put in a board of directors to hold him accountable. Uh, regular people, we also don't have really any alternative for social networks to use. There are no other options. They basically have, because Facebook owns Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook, they have a monopoly on social networks. We, as consumers, have no other options of places to go. You know, if you're buying a car and you've bought a Ford and you didn't like this time, you have so many other options of places to go, and that forces that company to behave better and create a higher quality product and act in your best interest. But we have no choices. We have no options. Really, we have no other options of where to go other than just stepping out and stepping off of Facebook completely, which has its costs, which is what I've been wrestling with for a while. The other thing is, so if the individual shareholders can't hold the company accountable, you would think that it would fall to governments to be able to hold the camp needs accountable and that they would hold them accountable. So in May 2019, uh, our government, the federal government was hosting an international panel. Uh, it was called the International Grand Committee on Big Data, Privacy and Democracy uh, with representatives from all over the world. And they had requested Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, two of the top people with Facebook to come. And they didn't. They just didn't come. So it's a bit of grandstanding. The government set up two empty chairs with their name tags on them. So anyways, there's an outstanding summons for Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg that if they ever step into Canada for any reason, they're supposed to be appear before Parliament and answer questions about Facebook and their behavior. And so they basically turned down the request from our government to come talk to us. And the year before, they declined to go talk to the British government either. So basically, we've got a company that has control over communications and data for 2 billion people in the world that's not accountable to shareholders and is saying not accountable to our governments either. So that was something else that kind of really didn't sit well with me. And so, and I'm not even really talking about the privacy and the data and the information that Facebook has on us. I, that was never, that's a big issue. I also don't know enough about it to talk in detail on it. Um, and so the financial incentives and the control and the unaccountability of the company were the two things that historically 
made me uneasy about Facebook. But the positives of Facebook for me, and I guess I'm I'm at a point where this is the case, always outweighed them because the positives were tangible for me and these concerns were kind of abstract and they didn't impact me on a day-to-day basis. So I kind of stuck with Facebook and just kept going and just kept going with it. And so for me over the last, you know, six or eight weeks, it started to shift that I've, I, a couple things. And one, I think I said right from the beginning, I think the whole response to coronavirus and COVID-19 required all of us to sacrifice some of the positives individually for society. And I started to think about that in regards to Facebook. And so I started to read more and learn more and hear more about some of the actual, like actual harms that were caused by Facebook. And so I read the book, it's just out this year, Facebook, The Inside Story by Stephen Levy. And he spent three years uh, observing and interviewing people at Facebook and a lot of a lot of people involved in Facebook, even from the beginning to the end, about the history. And so Facebook had the motto when they started, move fast and break things. That's what they wanted to do, move fast and break things. And it was growth above everything else. Growth. If something got in the way of growth, they scrapped it. And that was it. And so, and they made decisions along the way that have led to the point where we're at now, where there's such a proliferation of hate and hate speech on the platform. And so one one example about this is when Facebook decided to expand internationally into Myanmar, country Myanmar, which was at one point known as Burma, they had nobody on the team or in the company that could speak the language. And they still went into the country. And so in 2018, the UN put out a report that basically said Facebook was instrumental in the cultural genocide of the Rohingya people in me. And so Facebook has policies to limit and restrict hate, but they need somebody who can read and understand and speak the language in order to be able to enforce the policies that they have. And they made the decision to go into the country without that. And this is a common thread because they there's a common thread is that they don't look at how their platform and how their product could be used in a negative way. They just focus on how much they intend people or the intent that they have for how people use the platform, even not how people are actually using the platform. And sort of this disconnect has really limited Facebook's ability and willingness to act to limit and reduce hate and hate speech on their platform. And that sort of that's brought me to where I'm at right now with my feelings towards Facebook. So the point, the real big tipping point for me was in June, June 3rd or June 4th, I guess. So I didn't want to talk about him too much, but I got to talk to him about in this reference. So Donald Trump posted something on Twitter and then shared it on Facebook. And it was referencing when the looting starts, the shooting starts, which is a racial racist dog whistle from the 60s. And Twitter flagged it. Won't get too far into the weeds. Twitter flagged it. Facebook did not. But the events on that day were Donald Trump shared that on Facebook. High executives on Facebook called Donald Trump at the White House to ask him to change it. So you, to me, you only call and ask him to change it if you know it's wrong or you don't want to have to deal with it. Trump in the White House said no. Later on that day, Donald Trump called Mark Zuckerberg to talk to him directly. And then Mark Zuckerberg had some free speech reasons that he was okay with this staying up on the platform, even though it went completely against all their policies. Then a week or two later, the numbers came out that the Trump re-election campaign spending at least, or spending about $4 million a week on advertising on Facebook. 
so it felt very much to me that um, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg weren't upholding their policies towards hate speech if it was going to impact their bottom line and their ad revenue. And I said, especially when it comes to something like this and so important, I said, no, that that was a line that crossed and went too far for me. And then they've also made announcements. Facebook said, yeah, we're not going to fact check any political ads on the platform. So basically they're allowing pl- politicians to just put up whatever they want because they're paying, right? So the, to me, it was starting to see a lot of these decisions made in a way to protect Facebook's bottom line and not to upset right-wing politicians in the US and around the world. And so this was the early part of June and I have some notes I'd made and I wanted to just quit Facebook right at that moment. And I didn't and I struggled because I felt like I couldn't quit because I had starting the podcast and it was just growing and we were just getting people listening and most of the new traffic was coming from Facebook and I didn't want to sacrifice that. And it became this weird sort of internal struggle for me because again, what I referenced before, I would have to sacrifice something positive that I'm getting from Facebook in response to something that I didn't like that they were doing. And so that was the first part of June. And I wrestled with this for, um, you know, three or four weeks. And then I came across, it was the stop hate for profit campaign. And so this was organized by the anti-defamation league NAACP, um, color for change. And so these are civil rights groups that really represent minorities in the U S and their approach was to go to advertisers because as we talked about before, shareholders can't hold Facebook accountable. Uh, Facebook's not responding to any of the government's looking to do anything. So the only the only other lever really was maybe try to do something about their ad revenue, which was the advertisers. And so that's where Stop Hate for Change came in and started working with and presenting to big advertisers and showing them the problems on the platform, the problems of hate and how that's grown that way. And so I, I looked at it and said, you know, there's these big companies doing this. And I said, I mean... I'm such a small, I mean, it's just me producing a podcast. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this too. And I said, I will give up being able to share. Maybe I will lose some listeners on this podcast or not get some listeners that I possibly would have, but this feels like the right thing for me to do. So that's where I joined in the Stop for Hate um, Profit campaign. And with the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, these organizations met with uh, Mark Zuckerberg and some of the leadership from Facebook to present a series of suggestions and things that Facebook could do to help mitigate and alleviate some of the hate speech and anger that's on the platform. Um, Some of the comments that came from these groups after the meeting was, I don't know why we still have these meetings with Facebook. Uh, Facebook came expecting to get an A for attendance. Uh, Some of the headlines from the articles was like, this meeting did not go well. Uh, There was also reporting as well that when this campaign first started, uh, Mark Zuckerberg had a uh, full team meeting with Facebook and basically said, everybody, don't worry about this. The advertisers will be back. They have nowhere else to go. Right? And this is true. This is true for our town and our community. It's We have no really no other way or no other place to really promote your business or your events or your organizations. Like it's our communities come to rely on Facebook. And I would argue Facebook is proving they are not a reliable partner, that they are always going to act in their own best interest, in their own financial interest, in their own financial incentive. And the success of Amherst, the success of Cumberland County is irrelevant. If they even know where we are, or even know who we are, it's, it just, it doesn't matter to them. But as we, as businesses or people in our community 
post content on Facebook, hoping that people see it and hope people share it or people uh, learn about it. We're putting it back into that same vortex where it's got to be put up against other anger inducing content to decide for Facebook's algorithm to decide if, if they're more likely to get engagement by showing me um, an angry tweet or comment Trump made or what's happening uh, on Canada Day in the town of Amherst. And when it does those, that comparison, probably that angry Trump tweet's going to win out a whole lot more than what's happening on Canada Day or specials at a restaurant in town. So we're, our town and our ability to communicate is stuck and dependent on decisions Facebook's making and that they're proving to make for their own financial reasons. And this doesn't even really start to talk about so much of the hate speech and the impact it has on our community. So when this boycott, the Stop Hate for Profit boycott first started, um, Facebook started getting out and was presenting this this stat, which I'm, I'm going to use, but it's a bit misleading. And they said 89% of the hate speech removed on pla- on Facebook is done by our algorithm or AI before it's reported by anybody. So now to be clear, it's 89% of the content they remove for hate speech. It doesn't reference the fact that hate speech that they don't remove still gets amplified across everywhere. And it also doesn't identify how much hate speech they don't know about or that they don't remove. So it's a, sounds a little bit like they remove 90% of hate speech, but that's not correct. But now the other important thing is I said to my wife last night, actually, I saw this online. So we drive two of the same brand car. We drive, we have a Honda van and Honda car. And I said, if I asked her, I said, if we woke up and on CBC, there was an article or a headline that said 89% of the time, the seatbelts in Hondas work. I said, how quickly would we sell that car? Right? Because I need a seatbelt to work a hundred percent of the time. You know, my daughter's in there, our family's in there. It needs to work 100% of the time. Um, I think that historically we've determined that, yeah, hate speech is not acceptable and that the standard for hate speech shouldn't be, well, we miss, yeah, 10% of it, or we have to wait for 10% of it to be reported to us if they're removing all of it on the platform. I don't think that's acceptable. It should be, you take it all down. There should not be any of it. There shouldn't be any of it. You know, and so, I mean, we can see the impact on our, on our community right now. It was just a couple of weeks ago that our member of parliament, Lenore Zahn, you know, like she said, there's an article on CBC. She had to install a new home security system because she came out and supported the gun control bill. And there was comments, like I said, somebody called and left the Nazi anthem on her phone. Uh, another man warned her staff. He was, um, people he was friendly with had firearms and wanted to warn that there was going to be blood spilt on the ground. There was another person who posted on Zahn's Facebook page an obscenity and said he wanted her head on a platter. Like, no, this isn't acceptable. And the trouble is when Facebook makes the decision to allow Trump to put the, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, it gives, it signals to everybody else that this is okay. This behavior is okay. And it's not. I mean, it shouldn't be. I mean, the reality is like, I look at it and go, there's no way I would let my daughter in seven, eight, nine years go onto Facebook. Just not. You want to go on social media? When you're 18, you can do it. But until that point, because of this stuff, like I wouldn't want to risk exposing her to this. And I know it's out there. And the trouble is that this could all be fixed. 
Mark Zuckerberg could make the decision to fix it all. It would just require sacrifice financially. Uh, he would lose power. He would anger, you know, politicians in power. Like it would require him to have a huge, to make a huge sacrifice. But I think we would be better off. And the thing is, over the course of history, I think we've proven that the exception is the person who willingly sacrifices their financial wealth and their power. Most of the time, somebody who has that does not willingly give it up, and I just don't see it happening. And I also don't see anybody who can hold Facebook accountable. Um, Governments aren't able to do anything. Shareholders can't do anything. Um, Advertisers aren't having a whole lot of success. And yet, I can't I can't bring myself to delete my profile and it kind of, kind of baffles me. I've spent 33 minutes talking about how we have an unaccountable company that's increasing hate speech around the world, causing irreparable harm. And I'm afraid I may miss out on something on that platform. And I think what it, what it proves to me is that they've done an unbelievable job addicting people to their platform and to their profiles and convincing everybody that you don't want to quit. You may miss out on something. I think it's just proven that they've done that for whatever reason. I just, I can't bring myself to doing it or, or I shouldn't say that, but the thought of actually deleting my Facebook profile or deactivating just causes a lot of uncertainty and, and anxiety, which I suppose is what happens anytime you try to quit anything that you become addicted to. Um, you know, if you try to quit smoking, it can cause these feelings and that sort of stuff. And so maybe this is more, even just one more sign that, you know what, it's probably better for me just to just to deactivate. And if in six months, Facebook's made changes and are behaving better, I guess I can always recreate a new profile. I mean, I know all the same people and I can go back in and find them all. And so, you know, maybe it's just what I got to do is take that feelings of anxiety and say, I know what this is and accept it and log back in and just deactivate everything. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's the move. I think that's what I've got to do. So hold on, let me pause. All right. And, uh, yeah, I'm back. Um, I've done it. I logged in, deleted, uh, deleted my Facebook profile and page. So I guess you won't be able to find anything out about the podcast on Facebook. Uh, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, find us online, tjpod.com. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about this right now. Um, yeah, I'm really not sure. I guess I'll try to keep you up to date and let you know how I'm feeling towards this. Anyways, um, this has been my journey and my process and where I've reached to everybody will be making their own decisions and I encourage everybody to make their own decisions and whatever they are comfortable with uh, on this topic. Um, I think that's all I've got for today. If you're enjoying the podcasts, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. And like I said, plan for next week is to come back with an interview with uh, Brent Noyles from Kansas. Have a great week, everybody.